Welcome to the Canadian Real Estate Investor, where hosts Daniel Foch and Nick Hill navigate the market and provide the tools and insights to build your real estate portfolio. Welcome back to another episode of the Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast. My name is Daniel Foch. I'm a real estate broker practicing primarily in the greater Toronto area. I work almost exclusively with investors and I am a real estate investor myself. I'm joined here by my co-host, the man with probably the best hair in the real estate industry right now, maybe other than than John Basalis, <laughs> a guy who goes by the name of my buddy Nick. You're making me blush over here. Thanks, Dan. How's it going, everybody? Welcome back. We're here every Tuesday and Friday. My name is Nick Hill. I am a mortgage agent, a real estate investor, and recently, Dan and I decided we're going to start calling ourselves podcast hosts or co-hosts. So, we are here every Tuesday and Friday bringing you the best real estate content in Canada. And we have got a great episode for you today. Dan, what are we talking about today? Yeah. So today we're going to be talking about rental wash. And basically what this is, is it's a mortgage mechanism that allows you to use some of your rental income to qualify for more rental properties. This is a huge value add when you're trying to scale a portfolio. And from this, we're basically going to derive why we feel your first three rentals need to be cash flow positive properties. And we're going to talk about investing for cash flow versus investing for equity and investing for capital appreciation as well. So before we get started, Nick, I think there was a couple of different things you wanted to talk about. Yeah. I mean, again, very excited for today's episode. A lot of research, anecdotes. You know, We spoke to a lot of experts for this one. So excited to dive into it. These strategies can help you buy your second or your 10th investment property. But before we dive into the bulk of today's episode, I just wanted to touch on an article that you sent me late last night, actually. And I thought it was topical because this is episode 27. I believe it was episode 25. Your greatest ascent is your tenant. And we go all into tenants and landlord, tenant board and all that good stuff. And the article you sent me late last night, I don't know if you're trying to cause nightmares for me here or something, but it's an article titled, quote, Ontario's landlord and tenant board has collapsed, expert says, unquote, by CBC. So I'm, I'm chuckling here because, man, these journalists sure know how to put a title together. The issues at the landlord-tenant board aren't old. You know, We've both seen them in the last couple of years. But here's a good quote from the article to tell you just how bad things have gotten here in Ontario. Let me be very clear. This is the Landlord-Tenant Board of Ontario. This is where both tenants and landlords go when there's any kind of dispute between the two of them regarding the property. Quote, the board says it strives to give a hearing within 25 days, but the latest update from the summer indicates the average wait is now eight months. That's over eight times what they're telling you. And even 25 days, you know, still seems like quite a bit. So, I mean, Dan, I think this is not, you know, fully new news to us and some other investors. We've known it's been, let's say, a broken system. But for CVC to go and declare it collapsed, I found that both kind of scary, kind of intriguing. And, and I thought it was a good way to open things up today. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting conversation because, you know, I was actually at an event last night. There was a dinner for a lot of the panelists at the Veritas conference, which is happening today, Thursday, October 6. And, you know, one of the big things was people talking about vacant homes. And I think it's interesting in this country that investors have an incentive to leave homes vacant. And people are like, oh, this is, you know, this, this is a big issue. But to me, it communicates 
that there's a disincentive for somebody to create housing if they can make just as much money off of capital appreciation and that they don't want to assume the risk of having a tenant in the property. And it's almost like this infighting in, the, you know, or there's this inability to properly choose the villain that, you know, that whoever's making this argument wants to make in such that, <laughs> you know, it's like, okay, well, we have, we're very mad at the people who leave homes vacant, but we're also very mad at landlords. And it's like, well, you get one or the other. You don't really get both. And if you want people who who have homes that are leaving them vacant to become landlords, to provide housing, then you have to maybe stop demonizing landlords and maybe give landlords the tools to properly run their business, which is, you know, the business of collecting rent from people. And so, you know, when I posted the article on Twitter, it got a lot of feedback, got a lot of shares. And somebody who is massively well connected in this space commented this is somebody who who works this is somebody yeah, this who is yeah, and this is somebody who works with landlords basically i mean her business name is landlord rescue and she commented you know most courts are slow but in most cases you're trying to get money back for a singular event for the non-payment of rent it's like a tenant is robbing you and the police are forcing you to keep him in your store robbing you the whole time so that's a landlord rescue on twitter <laughs> and i mean look oh man it's, hurts. Yeah, it's it's sad and kind of true at the same time. And the reality is there's no recourse. So we've broken the system in such that, okay, people can make money off capital appreciation. Maybe that's gone because the market's trending downwards. But there's still this disincentive for somebody to rent out a property because you really are rolling the dice on whether or not, at least in this market, I think some other landlord and tenant boards are working better in other areas. And this is why I'm seeing a lot of... This is sure, why I'm seeing so. a lot of my investors who are wanting to move their capital into other markets, you know, across and this goes back to that conversation about which markets are more landlord friendly, landlord and tenant friendly. Yeah. But people are rolling the dice on whether or not if a tenant arbitrarily decides to stop paying rent for no reason, they can likely get up to 8 months of free rent. These are the risks that you're taking as a landlord. And, you know, we discuss a variety of different ways to offset those risks, but we have a, a problem with the way the system works in Canada. So, yeah, and you know what? Maybe this will open the door and finally force a little bit of reform within those pretty integral parts of you know the real estate investing system that we have here in Canada. Anyways, enough of that. Let's move on because we've got a lot to get through in this episode. Now, just to clarify, we will go back and do some more in-depth discussions on a lot of the stuff we're talking about today. This is really a high-level exploration of both rental wash and cash flow, why they're important, and how they are connected. So yes, car washes are satisfying. Washboard abs are pretty cool. Dan, you've got a you've got some washboard abs. I think they're disappearing. But we're not here to talk about <laughs> we're not here to talk about those kind of washes. And you're not saying, eh, it's a wash. Well, that doesn't apply here either. <laughs> we're talking today about rental wash. So it's a mortgage product that both A and B lenders offer. And what it does is it allows you to leverage your other properties from a cash flow perspective to increase your buying power for the next property. So what does this mean? Dan, let's use a bit of an example here. Sure. So say you're going to go buy a owner-occupied duplex and you already own a rental. Because the owner-occupied is the one that you're getting a mortgage on, you can use the rental wash on your existing property because you're now going to rent that one out. This means that you can take the cash flow from that property and add it to your GDS and TDS ratios or your gross debt service and total debt service ratios. These are ratios that mortgage underwriters use to determine the credit worthiness of you as a borrower. 
GDS is a percentage of your monthly household income that covers your housing costs. It must not exceed 39%. TDS is the percentage of your monthly household income that covers your housing costs and any other debt. So that Lamborghini Urus that you recently purchased, (laughs) it must not exceed 44. (laughs) On Kijiji. I think it was eBay. There's like 200 Lamborghini Urises for sale. Anyway, so I didn't realize this, but you can actually do a rent. I thought the rental wash program was basically you had to get to like scale. You had to have four units or six units. I think I might even mention that incorrectly on the show already. But you can use a rental wash program for just one unit. So this is why we prioritize cash flow, getting cash so that you can use that income to help your qualifying income. Yeah, I love that. And there's, I don't know, because to be honest, before I had done a few of these, I kind of thought the same thing. I don't know if it's the correlation of rental wash. I don't know. It makes you think, you just think, okay, well, I'll never be able to do that. I just have one rental property. You need a wash over, you know, across many properties, but no, surprisingly, you can do it for just one. So the important distinction is it cannot be for the subject property. So in other words, the property you are trying to purchase, but you can use a rental wash program for any other rental in your portfolio, whether your portfolio is one house, one duplex, one rental property, or 10. Obviously, the better the numbers are on these rentals, the higher the cash flow, the better the wash program looks. So anecdotally, we worked on a file a few weeks ago trying to implement this program for an investor client of ours, and it actually made her ratios worse and kind of killed the deal, which was also surprising for me. Because again, you just think, okay, it kind of economies of scale, you know, if, if it's bad here, and if I extrapolate that, maybe it won't be as bad, but actually extrapolating it made it worse because each one of those rental properties was suffering. Now, her portfolio was doing pretty well before the rate hiking cycle started. They were all cash flow positive because she has variable rates. They were super low. Hiking cycle starts and that cash flow starts to dissipate very quickly. Now she's actually at a negative cash flow overall. So when we did the rental wash and applied it to her, it actually made her GDS and TDS ratios worse than before. So I think that's a pretty good segue into the next segment here, Dan, which is cash flow. Yeah. And I think a lot of people want to know whether or not they should be investing for cash flow versus equity first. And in Canada, we have this issue where people have been obsessed with capital appreciation because we've seen everybody making money in real estate as if it's a get rich quick scheme. I'm going to tell Wait, you something. It isn't? Yeah, I know. <laughs> this, so, is a, this is a news to me. Right. So. It's the age old dilemma of real estate investing. Do you invest for cash flow or equity? And in a current market, it's, you know, and if you're looking at people buying in some of these overpriced cities, it's not even a question of get rich quick or slow. It's lose money fast or slow. Do you want to lose money on equity or do you want to, in a lot of these negative cash flow positions, do you want to spread out those losses over a long period of time? And people have been doing that. They've been buying properties in negative cash flows because the capital appreciation would pull the yield on the deal up over time. That's over. Okay, let's just accept that. We're not in a market where we're going to see double digit year on year appreciation. That's not sustainable. No. It's been proven to us. No. So, cash flow is the net income from real estate investment after mortgage payments and operating expenses have been made. So, this is your net operating income or your before tax cash flow. A key benefit of real estate investing is the ability to generate cash flow. In many cases, cash flow only strengthens over time as you pay down your mortgage. So, your mortgage payment gets reduced and build up your equity. As you pay down a property mortgage, you build equity. Equity is tied to the value of the property itself and how much you own of the asset. So you need to sell off the holding in order to liquidate or realize that liquidity in your asset. 
So why not both? You should definitely aim for real estate investment with both a significant equity margin upfront and good cash flow. Additionally, seek out a property in a decent area that will be relatively easy to manage and has a good likelihood of appreciation. The ideal property is one that will have natural appreciation over time, so good area, demographics, etc., and the ability to add forced appreciation, so add units, renovate, and ideally that forced appreciation will allow you to charge a premium for those units, increasing cash flow. One thing I will add here, Nick, before you take over is we know that in investment properties especially, the property's price is a function of the yield, the income in the property. And during recessions, we see cap rates increase, which means investors' price expectations decrease. Investor price expectations trade in a very predictable channel. The national average cap rate, which we talked about from the very first episode, is usually around 450 basis points above the Canada 10-year bond yield. That Canada 10-year bond yield right now is in the threes. So cap rates nationally, the expectation that investors are going to pay is in the sevens, likely. So you should be buying in the sevens. Then what you see happen as rates start to come down, and as we're not in a recession, as we're in a bull run, is you see something called cap rate compression. Investors are willing to pay more for properties. Their yield expectation is lower because the money that they're borrowing to buy the asset is less. So if you could be buying assets, good cash flowing assets in a bad market, that's the best thing that you can do to create real forced capital appreciation because based simply on the income, the value of the property is going to go up. Nick. Yeah, I love that, man. Great example, great explanation. If you guys want more on cap rates, go back and listen to our top five return metrics. Dan and I provide a whole bunch of great information on cap rates. And I think cap rates come up a decent amount overall in the podcast. They're they're pretty important. So to go back to your original point, Dan, cash flow and appreciation. I mean, both are really important for your investing career. And you know, you and I talk about this all the time. And I love this, the concept of that big money moment where essentially you get a huge lump sum of money. Now, this can be from the sale of a house, the first big refinance, your first deal closed, a wholesale, whatever it may be. But usually that can be a life-changing financial event. And of course, that's the event that we all want. Who doesn't want that check for 100, 250, 500K? And we've seen it happen many times and it changes the course of the investor's life. I just wanted to say before you move on here that I really like that you... I think I was calling it like liquidity event or something like that, which I got off of Twitter. But big money moment is probably the most <laughs> trademarkable Nick Hill original so far that we've seen from this show. So I really, really, really like that. That's it's pretty it's good. Huge. Yeah, it's huge. You know, we'll get Caden to put that on a t-shirt. We'll still show yeah, big like money moment t-shirts and mugs and stuff. <laughs> Okay, but well before that big money moment, and I'm going to unfortunately say this a few more times now, but before that moment happens, all of us investors should be focusing on cash flow and having properties that cash flow will allow you to use such programs as a rental wash strategy that will allow you to scale your portfolio and realize that moment sooner. So eventually you will have both cash flow and equity. The equity will eventually provide you with that big money moment, but it will take longer to get there if your first few properties aren't cash flowing. If your properties are cash flowing, you'll be able to use that strategy like a rental wash to scale by leveraging the cash flow in those existing properties to increase the buying power for your next one, in turn bringing you closer to that da 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 big money moment. So Dan, what are your thoughts? Now, what should someone's first three investment properties look like? Arguably the most important, you know, the first obviously is very important, but I'd say the first three are very, very important. Now, I know 
talking to investors all the time and talking to some of the biggest pre-construction salespeople in the country. I know pre-construction is usually a favorite for a lot of new investors because it seems pretty safe and it does present that opportunity for a big money moment when you finally take possession in the future. But let's play devil's advocate here and let's pick on pre-construction condos for a second as to why they might not fit the bill as a cash flowing investment to get to that rental wash program. Yeah. So I think that when you're purchasing a pre-con, especially a condominium, I mean, I, I don't think there are many markets in which a condominium is going to be a cash flowing asset if it's purchased at today's prices and today's rental rates. And don't get me wrong, rental rates are going to go up. But in order for a pre-con in downtown Toronto, as an example, to cash flow, you'd basically have to have a 50% down payment or a greater than 50% down payment, or you'd have to have rental rates functionally double from where they are today. And they're already at like 2500 on average. So now we're looking at New York prices. And if you're paying $5,000 for a one-bedroom or two-bedroom in Toronto, just move to New York. Yeah. I think a lot of people like the idea of especially the pre-construction side because you're basically buying an options contract. So you're, you're Wall Street betting the Canadian real estate market. <laughs> and so it's a low capital requirement. You typically spread that capital requirement over several years. And we're probably going to do an episode on this. We might even have Jordan Skrinko on here to talk about why people like it. But yeah, I think sure. it's you're basically putting more of a deposit down spread it out over time. So for people who don't want to put that big capital amount right up, up front, and then you're waiting for the unit to be built and you're hoping that it appreciates in value prior to then. That's the big, you know, the, the hope that you get that big money moment between buying your contract and closing on the unit. Then once you take possession of the unit, you're hoping that it'll cash flow. And in a lot of cases, what we're seeing now is not only are the units not worth what they were pre-sold for, because the builder is trying to realize the market value, you know, they're selling at 20% over what that unit would be worth if it existed today. And so the unit's not worth it because prices are no longer going up and the rents aren't going to cash flow the deal. And I don't necessarily know many scenarios in which things were different than that, other than like a decade ago when prices, you know, prices have grown so much since then, if prices have tripled, yeah, okay, you're on side. I don't see a tripling of prices happening from where we stand right now. And so I focus on investing. I think that there's this conflation between people speculating in real estate and investing in real estate. So the issue with a pre-construction as one of your first three investments is that it ties up the funds for years. If you plan on buying and holding once finished, the likelihood of cash flow is very low. Pre-con takes a while to close and we're in a depreciating market. So you could possibly lose that equity on a new build. Once you factor in all those expenses plus condo fees, it can kill a deal. So why don't we go back to the example from a rental wash perspective again, now that we've gone over that difference. Now that we've picked on all the pre-condo buyers, sorry, Jordan, well, you know, we, we yeah, I, do, have... I do think there's merit to pre-con investing. It's just, it's a very specialized market. It's not something that like, look, cash flow investing is more easy to put the rules in like, you know, to go bowling with the rails up or whatever. Like, it's like color within these lines and you'll be successful. Pre-construction is like color within these lines, but four of them are moving and one of them depends, <laughs> right? And yeah. you know, and one of them depends on on Toronto basically becoming New York and then it'll be a great investment. And it's just too variable from my perspective. It's not clear cut enough, but the idea seems simple. It's like put a little bit of money down and then realize like the equity later. You're right. It does sound great. It's hard to apply the true principles that we teach. And even when we interviewed Sasha from Greybrook, the, the principles that they use, right? The principles that small, medium, and large cap investors are using, 
traditionally the real traditional core values of real estate investing sometimes don't apply or are trickier to apply to that pre-construction space, especially if it's a condo. Now, again, we, you know, just to shed a little bit of light, that condos can still be very, very lucrative if done correctly in the medium term or short term rental space. We'll talk about that on another episode. I just didn't want to completely destroy anyone that has bought a pre-condo and is now listening to this thinking, oh God, what have I done? So let's go back now that we've kind of got a high level understanding of rental wash. We've got an understanding of cash flow. We've got an understanding of equity. And we've also spoken about what the first couple deals should look like and how important cash flow is. So let's go back to that original example. So you own a rental property. Let's say you have house hacked a duplex and house hacking is just buying a duplex, living in one side, renting out the other. This allows you to put less than 20% down because it's owner occupied. And it also allows the tenant to pay off your mortgage. So you're living for free. So you have this duplex, you're house hacking it. And now you're looking for another duplex to house hack. You are able to use the cash flow from the current rental you are in, in the rental wash program to help you purchase that next duplex. Now, any deficits are added to the liabilities on your mortgage application, and any surpluses are added to the income side of your application. That is exactly what you want. Now, some lenders add expenses like $100 a month for insurance, 10% for vacancy, or like 50 bucks for maintenance or something. Different lenders do different things, and the rules will change. You know, talk to myself or, or your mortgage professional or your bank, and they can help walk you through this. And what we started to see is more and more common, especially with today's rates, and I think this will be an increasing trend going into the next couple quarters, is your first rental could likely now be with a B lender, probably more so than the last several years. I think we're going to see a comeback with B lenders. Now, Dan, we both know and love B lenders, and I know we really need to get an episode out about what is a B lender and why we like them. I feel like we need to make like a our first merch drop has to say like B borrower. Like we need people to take pride oh, in borrowing I from love the B side. It. But I think it's like we've gotten to this point. I say this all the time on the show. It's like there's two things that you can't do as a Canadian. You're not allowed to rent and you're not allowed to borrow from a B lender. It's like the we have the weirdest relationship with housing in this country. Anyway, sorry, finish your thought. There. Yeah, well, I was just I mean, it was just to build off on that, right? The B lenders are more lenient, especially from a DSCR, which is the a debt service coverage ratio. They're way better for self-employed guys like you and me and I know now with people reaching out, a bunch of listeners to this show, you know, they're way better looking at gross versus net income. So when you're going to buy your second property, we can usually leverage that first property surplus if it's good enough, if that cash flow is good enough to ideally land that next deal and the likelihood of landing that next deal now with an A lender that have better rates and that obviously a lot more people are more comfortable with increase drastically. Yeah. And I think, you know, there's other reasons why the B side could help you here, like even with a longer AM or like you said, the debt service coverage ratio is being a little bit more lenient. You know, whatever you can do to make the cash flow better on those first couple of deals, it's going to help you scale. And here's why. From my perspective, if your salary is relatively fixed, you know, even if we were millennials were at our prime earning potential, we're at our prime upward mobility, you're not going to be able to double your income within the next five or ten years. But one way that you can significantly increase your income as a millennial is by adding income streams. And one of the ways to do that is adding rental properties, rental property income. And so every unit that you add, as long as it's cash flow positive, will increase your income so that next time you go get underwriting, you know, like you want to go buy a property today and your lender says, no, you can't buy that property because you don't qualify for $450,000. 
Well, the next time that you go, now all of a sudden, because you went and bought a home for one hundred and dollars or $200,000 and it's cash flow positive, the next time you go back, you might be able to qualify or you're getting closer to qualifying because your income is going up. So there's a couple of different variables in your underwriting, income being one of the primary ones. So I think it's really important to know this stuff before investing. This is where the knowledge of how all of the mechanics of the mortgage market plays a key role. If you need cash flow and you can leverage it to scale faster, if you know you need cash flow and you know that that's a tool to scale you faster, that should be your primary goal. And I would say for most people, unless your income is in the millions of dollars, and if that's the case, you're probably not listening to this podcast because <laughs> hey, you're probably better at this than we are. Yeah. Then your goal should be to increase your income and to increase your income through real estate. Equity will come. And this is one of the most important key considerations, especially in a down cycle. Good investments, good yielding real estate assets are going to go up in value just as quickly as the rest of the market is. Don't rely on capital appreciation to make your investments make sense. If you buy a damn good investment, or if you turn an investment into a damn good asset, it's going to be marketable 10 years down the road when you need to liquidate it. And it's probably going to go up in value just as much as some random suburban home or some random condo in an urban area in Toronto is going to go up over the next several years. So don't worry about the capital appreciation. Buy good assets. People will appreciate them. Ooh, I like that. Pun intended. People <laughs> will appreciate them in several years. So your first three properties should be cash flowing machines. This will allow you to leverage that cash flow for your income, leverage that equity for your down payment, and to scale a portfolio. Yeah, I love that. And before I get into just my kind of little closeout for this section, I forgot to say this earlier and I'm, I'm rattled now because it was it was good. And this is a conversation I had with our ghostwriter, you know, he should not be named. We'll leave it at that. And he's done a ton of these rental wash deals, right? I had a great chat with him before just to make sure that we had all the information on point. He said, the most common question I get is, and you know, most people, if you're in the real estate space, everyone knows someone like this, right? How does that school teacher own 10 properties? How does that government employee own seven rentals when I make $150,000 and I'm having trouble getting financing for my primary residence? It's because whoever is doing that, that school teacher, that government worker, that person with a not crazy salary, but steady enough income, they are using a rental wash program to scale their portfolio. So you really want to focus on getting cash flow up. And I know most of us are always thinking about expansion, more doors, more units, bigger projects. But in times like this, the best thing for most of us to do is look at our existing assets and make sure they are performing at the highest level they can. So just as Dan was saying, figure out ways to maximize what you already have. If you're looking for your first property, focus on education, but I'm speaking to the people that are in that position looking to increase their portfolio, looking to increase the number of doors. If you're kind of sitting on the sidelines right now, like a lot of people are, you're a little hesitant, figure out how to maximize your current assets. So rent out the garage or any extra space you have. Make sure to be raising your rents by, of course, the legal amount. If there's a tenant turnover, make sure you go in there and bring that unit back up to date to command market rent. Take another look at your utilities even and all the little small things to figure out how to cut cross and increase that cash flow so that when you're ready, you can go and talk to a guy like me or talk to whatever mortgage professional or lending institution you prefer 
and ask them about that rental wash program. Yeah, for sure. I, I think that the key here, it's we always break this down, make it a business decision. This isn't a passive income. You're not really investing. You're running a business and that business is becoming a landlord. And so run your business well. Because when you go back to lenders, when you're a landlord, when you're a professional landlord, and eventually, if you're doing this right, you're going to be making more money from your rental properties than you will be from your income. And so run that business well. Run your business of being a landlord well. Every asset that you have should be a net asset, not a net liability. It should be an income stream, right? Not a cost. You don't want it to be costing you money because if it's costing you money, if it's net negative, like the example you used at the beginning of this episode, if it's bleeding out, if your cash flow negative, then the lender is going to look at you and say, your income is lower than you're telling me because I can see here on your bureau that you have to service this property and that property costs you 500 bucks a month. And so I'm reducing your income now by 500 bucks a month. On the flip side, if you own a property and they're seeing, hey, I see this property makes you 500 bucks a month. I'm going to add that 500 bucks to your income. And so again, it's all about increasing your income scenario, making yourself a better business case, a better borrower for deals number three and four and five and six. And I'm telling you right now, the first deal is the hardest one. A hundred percent, the first deal is the hardest one. Once you've done it, once you've done one deal and you realize how simple it is to take possession of a property. Like right now, I'm actually in the middle of a closing day. You just did it. Yeah. A closing, clo- well, I'm in the middle of a closing week. And this has probably been the hardest deal I've ever done just because I'm running around. The lending environment's a little bit crazy right now. And I'm running around getting a bunch of documents. I've had a lot of changes in my personal situation as well over the past couple of years. It's been a hectic year to say the least. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it's been a lot for me to close this deal. But I remember every time I've done a real estate transaction, just being like on closing day, just being like, I just took possession of a million dollar asset and it feels like nothing changed. Like you imagine it being this extremely significant thing. And so for people, I find that people who have already purchased their primary residence have a much easier entry into investing because they they understand the simplicity of taking possession of a property, of buying a property. It's like, go make an offer with an agent go talk to a mortgage broker, get some money and then close that damn thing with a lawyer, right? Like yeah. it's, it, it sounds, but yeah, I mean, if, and it goes back to that, you know, to circle it back to that element of the team, you got a good team, you won't stress through that whole process. Yeah. I love it. And hey, didn't we do an episode on that? The six people you need to buy your first investment, go check that saying, one out. Yeah. And I just wanted to close off before we get to the deal of day. I know you got a sweet one lined up here. I know a lot of our listeners don't have a rental property yet. A lot of a lot of you listening own a, a primary residence. So just to clarify for you, this program won't work for you. So someone with no rentals and a primary residence, you won't be able to use your primary in this program. But once you have acquired that first rental, you know, with an A lender or a B lender or whatever, then that property becomes because it has to be a rental and it can't be the subject property. So Of course, the rental wash program really only acquires to people with rental properties, but all you need is one. So go find that first rental property. Again, Dan and I have team members across the country in every major city, in every major area, mortgage brokers, real estate agents, all investor focused. If you want to find a property with our help, please reach out and let us know. Reach out to us in the email provided in the show notes. Anyways, wow, I yeah. can't believe we actually got through that that quickly. That was a ton of information. 
Any recaps you want to do, Dan, on all that good stuff before we hop into your sweet little deal of the day? Not really. I mean, I, I think it really comes down to, and you know, just to curtail the part that you mentioned there about not working for a primary residence. I mean, the primary residence is a liability, right? It really yeah. is. It's a debt that you have to service every month. Yeah, it goes up in value, the home, the asset that's attached to that. But on paper, until you've amortized more than 50% of your home, from my perspective, it is a liability. It's a debt that you owe on a monthly basis. And so that's a negative thing when you're using your income to go and try and purchase another property. And this is why you'll often see borrowers naturally just through the process of saying, you know, we've had all these people, they're absolute geniuses in the past two years. They're like, <laughs> I made, I'm so smart. I bought a home in 2020 or 2019 and now it's gone up 50%. And I'm obviously the best real estate investor in the world. So I'm going to go borrow against this house and I'm going to go buy another place. What ends up happening is they realize, oh, the numbers aren't going to work if I borrow against this house and go buy a duplex. So what they do is they vacate that place. This is super common. They vacate that place and then they go move into number two. So what what was becoming more and more common and what I would say that what's becoming extremely common for the first time investor, the landing pad for a lot of people entering the market. And this isn't something I recommend, by the way. But this is what we're seeing a lot of these speculators who are entering the market or people who are entering the market as beginner investors not doing it the right way is they would vacate the small house and they would rent that one out. And then they would move into the bigger house that they want to upsize into. And because they would do that, they're able to realize that rental wash was before it was a liability because they were going to try and purchase something else. And then you know now... I think that the tables have turned because the capital appreciation scenario is different. One more thing I want to add before I get to the deal of the day here. We talked about the team. We talked about surrounding yourself with good people. I just mentioned, you know, I obviously have a deal closing this week and I have an amazing team that has made it exceptionally easy for me to do that. (laughs) And we want to be able to make other people have the same teams, be able to aggregate. And so what we want to do is we want to build a collective of people in the real estate space across the country. And we've gotten tons of emails since we first started mentioning this. We're going to put a link to the Facebook group eventually. But for now, if you send us an email, if you want to start a meetup, an in-person meetup, we'd love to help you do that. We'd love to have them across the country. We're trying to work on either a partnership with a co-working space or a restaurant right now to make that possible for our listeners to do that across the country. The other thing is eventually we want to have an online community likely through a Facebook group. So we'll send you a link to that if you want to get started there just talking to different investors around the country about doing deals because I couldn't have closed deals as simply as I do in present day without that team. And I think that the one thing that we can do from afar to help other people invest as easily as we do is bring more and more people together, teach people more, share information, etc. Yeah. So reach out to us. We want to build a community around this stuff. Okay. Deal of the day, Nick. So this is a 6.33% cap rate deal. Oh, that's pretty nice. It's not bad. I mean, I'd say it's probably a little bit low for this market. So this is in St. John, New Brunswick. I would say which St. John is probably like a 7 to 8 cap market right now. Okay, you so can get like some, on some of the some of the cheaper duplexes that are available in that market are definitely, you know, like they're yielding even close to 10% cap rates. This wow. is 148 Sydney Street in St. John, New Brunswick. NB080793. It's a fourplex. It's a beautiful, beautiful house. Yeah, you, I, I just posted this. it on my. I love this yeah, place. I posted on my Instagram. Really, really nice. Like that's what really drew me to it. I was just clicking through, looking for one to do, and century building on a hill. So it's it's got like the yeah. It's it just. I wonder what the views are like from that place. Actually, 
So I actually thought, I thought I was like, I just assumed, you know, and this is what's interesting about long distance investing. Cause I always post these things on Instagram and TikTok and stuff like that. And people just rip me apart. They're like, you don't understand this market. So I was like, I mean, look, it's across from this park. So I was like, it's gotta be a good location. And also typically when I see a heritage building, that to me means that it's within an old historic downtown. Mm-hmm. And so to me, that usually means more walkability. It's part of like the older historic area. And that often makes it a better location. It turns out in this case, many people told me that's a really rough area of town. So it might not be an exceptionally good deal. So you're not taking but, the kids to the park. You might be doing right. other things in the park. <laughs> okay. Right. Yeah. We don't know what kind of park it is. Yeah. Jury's out on that one. But gotcha. so, so there's two units that rent for 875, the two one bedroom units. And then there's a, sorry, two two bedroom units. One rents for 1175 and then the other one's vacant. So I'm assuming I modeled this as if it was going to rent for 1175 as well. I'm imagining you're probably going to be able to beef up that rent a little bit. So the return might actually be better than what I'm saying. But to me, it's cool. It's a really sexy Victorian fourplex. It'd be a really cool asset to hold in your portfolio, just the way that it looks. But worth noting, it's old. Victorian, old Victorian home, old red brick. They come with a lot of problems. So there's almost a trade-off between the sex appeal or the cool design, that history. You know, I'm not at a point in my career where I'm able to buy problems yet or I, I don't have enough profit that I need to buy losses as an example, because this is going to be an expensive property to manage. So what I did was I put a $500 a month maintenance fee on that, which I feel like is... you know That's a lot. That's six grand a year that you can spend on maintaining a property like this. It's an older flat roof too. So you've got some like... you know There's a lot of challenges. It could be some big, like bigger CapEx expenditures as well. Yeah. Definitely. So you know I made that assumption when I modeled this out and the cap rate still came out at 6.33%. I actually like the deal. I mean, it's kind of cool. It's like sexy. Like a lot of those... Quebec City multiplexes that I've been looking at mm-hmm. for potentially as Airbnbs and stuff like that. So anyway, I like the deal. I like the market. St. John, New Brunswick. Take a look at it online. And I just quickly plug this into to landlord.io's deal analyzer, which we've you know been given access to for all of our listeners. If any of you guys want to check that out, we'll put a link in the show notes. You can analyze a deal in seconds using that tool. It's really, really exceptional. Yeah. You want to look like a genius? Start using Landlord. It's It's fantastic. Yeah, and they make like pretty cute little like infographics, like really digestible ways to present the metrics. Like I even use these for clients who are looking at stuff and I just basically screenshot it and send it to them. Like here's for sure. Here's the analysis, right? Remember all those times we've talked about, you know, if you don't have money and you're trying to attract finances and you need to look like the smartest guy in the room, you need to know the deal inside out. Boom. Roasted. Landlord. That's all you gotta do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it is good. Yeah, it's good for sure. On that horrible joke, I think it's probably time to end this one. <laughs> Thanks so much, Dan. I hope everyone got a ton of value and enjoyed as much enjoyed listening as much as Dan and I enjoyed putting it together. Every Tuesday and Friday, we are here dishing out the best real estate information in Canada. Let us know what you want to hear, who you want to hear, and reach out to us. We're pretty easy guys to find. Thanks so much for listening. The Canadian Real Estate Ambassador is for entertainment purposes only and not financial or investment advice. Always do your own due diligence. Nick Hill is a mortgage agent with Premier Mortgage Center, license number 10317, and a partner in G&H Mortgage Group. Agent license is M21004037. Daniel Foch is a real estate broker at Royal LePage or Community Realty, a member of Royal LePage Commercial and a licensee with the Canadian Real Estate Association, Ontario Real Estate Association, and a member of the Toronto Real Estate Board.